spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 188. On today's show, we talk about new advances in experimental archaeology. Let's dig a little deeper in ways we never could have imagined. Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Good. So we are back in Reno. Yeah, back in the place we started two years ago. Yeah, indeed. So mm-hmm. we're here for about a month. So if you're in Reno, then uh, don't call us. Don't say anything because we won't meet up with you probably. But, uh, you know, there it <laughs> you is. You will. I'm the one with like weird anxieties and like, <laughs> right. like don't want to see anybody. <laughs> no, that's not. I mean, I'll absolutely go like have a coffee and talk archaeology with you. So yeah, definitely. So if you happen to be in the Reno area. All right. So this episode is all about experimental archaeology, which is really cool. And, and it's really the way that we kind of figure stuff out, right? Yeah. Because we, we find all kinds of things in the archaeological record, but we can infer some sort of use. We can infer how they were made, but unless you really can sort of prove that, even through your biased lens of modernity, mm-hmm. you can still kind of get a sense of you know, how something could have been used or how something could have been made by just doing experiments with or on it. Yeah, totally. I find experimental archaeology to be super appealing because I love making things with my hands. And a lot of times that's what it involves is making the thing with the methodology and the materials that they would have used in the past. And, you know, seeing if you can reproduce it, seeing Mm -hmm. how you would have made it. I just it's so appealing. Maybe because I'm a knitter, I guess. Like I love to make things with my hands. I don't know, but it's like really appealing. And for our newly growing Australian audience, we have a uh, <laughs> we have a, a boomerangs article. Yeah, and the, this article is actually what like kicked off the whole experimental archaeology themed episode. The name of the article is "Wood Sharpened Stone: Boomerangs Used to Retouch Lithic Tools," and there's a PhD candidate, Eva Francesca Martellota. And she's basically studying how hardwood boomerangs could be used to retouch lithic tools. Right. When you say lithic tool, you've got a stone projectile point or knife or something that's got a sharp edge on it. And if you use it and use it and use it and it doesn't break, well, the edges get dull. Yeah, Because pieces pieces break off, they just, you know, the edges get dull. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it still has a shape that you can use, though, and sometimes you just need to... It seems counterintuitive, but you push like an antler is what a lot of North American Native Americans use. Mm -hmm. They use like an antler or or something hard, but not too hard like other rock. And you push against the the edge just like straight on with it perpendicular. And then you can kind of work off little flakes. Is that like pressure flaking? Is that what that is basically when you push against the edge like that? That is pressure flaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's putting pressure on it to produce a flake. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the... 
that's all part of flint napping. But then you can also like hit it with another, you know, harder substance and take mm-hmm. off legs. But you generally, if you're going for this retouch effect, if it really is just a light retouching to sharpen up the edge, then you use a technique like this. Yeah, it makes sense. If you if you try to strike it with something harder, you run the risk of you, you know breaking it in half yeah, yeah or taking off a piece that's yeah. way too big and and basically ruining the edge that you're just trying to like make a little bit sharper or maybe mm-hmm. reshape just a little bit yeah and in this area we know they've used bones to do this uh, mm-hmm. like i said antler is a lot of often yeah. used and and i don't know what kind of antler bearing species they have in australia if any to be honest with you i have no idea yeah they didn't really discuss like what other things were used but they definitely mentioned that bones were Mm -hmm. and the whole idea behind this article is that while they use bones could they have used boomerangs maybe yeah and yeah that's basically the conclusion is they they definitely could have used boomerangs Mm -hmm. it sounds like where this came from this idea is first off, boomerangs go back way far in Australia. Yeah. Like they've been using these boomerangs for a really long time. And boomerangs, I mean, I got to say this, they're not like some kind of joke from like a cartoon <laughs> or kids movie. They're real things right. <laughs> that, that you actually do throw. And, and if you have it, if it's shaped right, it's aerodynamic. I mean, it will circle around and kind of come back to you. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know. they were primarily used for hunting and fighting, but because they were such an important part of the mm-hmm. Aboriginal culture, there's no reason to think that they weren't using it for other things in addition to the hunting and the fighting that they might have I been mean, doing. Yeah. If you've got one, right? Yeah. I've seen, them, yeah. I've seen them like tied to string too and swung around and they make this oh. kind of vibrating noise too. Oh. There's a lot of things they can be used for. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could pick your teeth with it. <laughs> you can smack somebody on the butt with it. There's all kinds of things. Gross. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So how did they figure out that the boomerang could have been used to retouch a lithic tool? Basically, they did it. They retouched a lithic tool <laughs> using a modern reproduction of a boomerang. Or it's a, I don't know if it's a reproduction. I think they actually did get it from like a one of the aboriginal tribes. So it was like made in the same ways that they would have been made by yeah. past cultures and same right. wood, same material, everything. So it was a modern production but made with like ancestral aboriginal methods yeah yeah Yeah. and materials and so they they did that they retouched francesca marlota she she did that retouching and then she compared the useware on the boomerang with useware that is found on bone retouching tools where Mm -hmm. we know they did the same thing and that useware was very very similar so that's how they they came to this conclusion and really cool some of the bone tools that they were comparing with like they go back almost 200,000 years so you know they had a long history of bone tools to compare it with and you know we can't say for sure that boomerangs were used by all people going back that far but they could have and that is the cool part of this study right and I don't remember seeing where they got that number in the article but if you're thinking 200,000 years in Australia I'm pretty sure there weren't people there prior to, I think it was 40,000 years, but they used bone tools from other assemblages that oh, do date back that yes. far. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't so. all just Australia. It was right. just like those tools from everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the boomerang, like you said, was primarily used for hunting and fighting. Again, I just want to see somebody fighting with a boomerang, like a boomerang <laughs> fight breakout. Yeah. But uh, like you said, it's a little more of a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, so. yeah, multifunctional. Yep. Yep. 
So if you want to see what it looks like to retouch a lithic tool using a boomerang, <laughs> there's a really cool video in the article. So definitely, I recommend checking that out. That's really, really neat. Nice. So one of the interesting things that was mentioned in the article, and here's a quote actually from Francesca Martellota. She says, while our results for the first time scientifically quantified the multipurpose nature of daily tools like boomerangs, this is something that Aboriginal people have known from a very long time. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really cool because it seems like what she and the people that she's working with are doing, they're taking like cultural knowledge, things that Aboriginal peoples maybe say that they have done or that they do, yeah. and then almost proving it out using the experimental archaeology here, which I think is really neat. And you don't have to just prove what artifacts that you find would have been used for. Mm -hmm. You can also use it to prove the cultural knowledge of people from the area that they say that they used to do things that way. Right. And you often have to do stuff like this, especially with like wooden tools, because the wood just doesn't last. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Like, Like it's difficult probably to find something that would be in good enough preservation state to be able to see this kind of wear mm-hmm. on it even if you have found you know boomerangs in the archaeological record which i'm sure people have mm-hmm. but yeah do they do they still maintain that integrity so yeah. that you can see this yeah i mean you know how wood gets when it's degrading it just yeah. gets so soft and flaky on the edges half the time so obviously we don't have any archaeological evidence for that currently mm-hmm. but there could be and you know what it also means is that because it could have happened in my mind, means that we need to look a little bit more closely at perhaps some boomerang examples that we do have that are preserved really well. Yeah. Because maybe we will see that on on some of them if we're looking for it. In the past, if you weren't looking for it, then you might have just thought that those little nicks and scrapes on mm-hmm. it were, were from some kind of degradation or some other sure. process of decomposition, but not necessarily from retouching lithic flakes so or lithic tools you know i wonder if the aboriginal people here since they knew how multifunctional their boomerangs were if they shipped their boomerangs up to greece so they could use them (laughs) to score their large vessels let's find out on the other side of the break let's Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Keep this conversation going by joining our members-only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. 
Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, the Experimental Archaeology Edition. Yeah. <laughs> and as I said, we're going all the way up to Greece with another Experimental Archaeology article. Now, this article is from exarch.net, which is the Journal of Experimental Archaeology. Yeah, yeah. which I didn't know existed, and I yeah. definitely went down a bit of a rabbit hole looking at all the different cool things that archaeologists mm -hmm. do. Yeah. This one was submitted by Brianna Jenkins, and it is called Scored Basins from Late Minoan Crete, an Experimental Interpretation from Construction to Functionality. So, essentially, the time period that we're talking about here and the place, again, is Bronze Age Crete. Now, Crete is an island that I've actually been to Ooh. when I was on the Enterprise. Jealous. I want to go. Yeah. So, Crete is an island off the coast of Greece, mm -hmm. and pottery production during this time, we'll talk about the time in a minute. And other like agricultural and architectural methods were extremely advanced mm. technologies during this time. Okay. They just like for the time period, they were doing all the high end stuff. Yeah. Like they, they just knew what was going it on. Out. Yeah. Yeah. The experimental focus here is on the what they call the late Minoan one period. And in fact I think they even say the late Minoan one B period. Oh okay. From fifteen hundred to fourteen fifty BC. Oh, that's really specific. It's like yeah. that tight fifty year period. That's actually kinda of hard to do in archaeology sometimes. Well, it makes you wonder like if they're really at the height of technology, so to speak, at the time, mm -hmm. well, that means you're staying up on changes or creating those changes. Yeah. So you're going to have a tight time frame for certain technological aspects of things, maybe only a few generations like this. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, and the region is called Maklos, which mm -hmm. again is on Crete. Crete is not like a small island. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's big. It's good size. Yeah. Yep. There's a building there called the Artisan's Quarter. 
was named that because it's got various rooms all tied to craftsmanship and workshops. Mm. And interesting thing is, it sounds like it was kind of off by itself because the building was once connected to the ancient site of Maklos by a land bridge. <laughs> so we put our artists over here where they, they get this little land bridge little, to be connected to us. But Little artist commune. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the maybe the seas will rise and we can just do away with them at some point. Yeah. So, that sounds about right. That sounds very know. modern, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the the area was a place of massive pottery production. They were just mm-hmm. like all kinds of phases of pottery, firing, you know, mm-hmm. they were preparing clay, forming vessels by either hand or wheel, hand using like the coiling method. Yeah, yeah. Um, or on an actual wheel, which oh. I didn't know the wheel dated back then. I was going to say, I didn't yeah. know that you could throw back then. Cool. Yeah, so... I've been throwing clay since I was a child, but uh, not in the good way. <laughs> I'll say right now, let's like preface this with our pop culture reference. <laughs> that we, the only reason we know any ceramic words at all is because of the great pottery throwdown on HBO Max. It, it's a British show. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's amazing. It's like yeah. people who compete making pottery and it's just so gentle and nice and they're also nice to each other but it's a competition and i think we consumed the entirety of it in like a week while we were in mexico earlier this year because it was just a delight to watch so i want all my dishes to be raku (laughs) raku is the best (laughs) (laughs) don't know what that is go watch that show go check it out yeah yeah so anyway anyway, they were doing all the stuff over here yeah Uh, all the all the phases of the project basically now for this experiment the real focus here was they were trying to identify essentially the various functions of these scored basins mm-hmm. and and really the the functions and the experimental techniques for how they would have been created because you don't really get this from the article too well i feel like but these basins are enormous yeah they yeah. they're huge and i think part of it was like how did they make them so big and then right. what were they doing with such a gigantic vessel yeah. when it was completed because again our knowledge from that show which was amazing <laughs> i'm not even kidding like yeah. some of the things that have to happen before you can fire something like this successfully is it has to dry completely mm-hmm. and it has to fire to a certain temperature yeah. a really high temperature yep so those two things mean you need a kiln that is capable of doing that mm-hmm. you need a kiln of the size and and nature to be able to put this inside and then fire it to that temperature so and you still have to cross your fingers when you walk away from that kiln that it doesn't <laughs> right. like a little bit of moisture didn't get trapped in it and then it just causes the whole thing to explode so yeah, yeah. exactly and take everything else out with it because yeah usually when you're doing a firing <laughs> there's other stuff in there as well right exactly yeah for this experiment, they constructed a kiln based on the research of two different kilns of differing sizes, but with similar characteristics mm. from the area. And they attempted to try to understand some of the firing techniques and not only that, but building aspects of the kiln, you know, yeah. like putting it together. What I loved about this experiment is that it wasn't just like creating a large ceramic vessel to see how to do it, but you have to make the kiln. Yeah. And what do you use to make a kiln? bricks so they had to make the bricks to make the kiln to make the pottery to fire it and finally yep. figure out how it was made and then yeah so it's just so elaborate I know. This study they had was. to use a kiln to make bricks to make a kiln yeah it's <laughs> like it's like the whole thing where you get a robot that's a 3d printer to just start making copies of itself right it's a lot <laughs> so this is all kicked off because there's a small habitation area near here called chalanamori I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Chalanamori. Sure. And it was a an area that was concentrating on agriculture. And within the 
dwellings and the pottery collected from this area, but within the the different areas and various rooms, there were these scored basins, mm-hmm. basically huge basins with literally scored, like they yeah. had marks in them that were that were made, and it was like, well, how did they make these? What was going on? That was the question they were trying to answer, and potentially by figuring out how they were made and and how they came out of the kiln, you know, rather than just the pieces that we have to put together, mm-hmm. they might be able to try to start determining function as well. Yeah, totally. And yeah. if you're wondering how we can know how big something was just from fragments, yeah. is there basically they can look at the curvature of the fragment and use that to basically calculate how large the vessel would have been from there. With rims in particular, it's really easy because you can see that shape and then you'll know how big the opening was. But I think you can do it with body fragments as well to get the full shape of it. You can, but for some of that to work to get the full shape of the vessel, you kind of like have to know what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, because if you just got like a rounded body fragment, that could be on any number of vessels, right? Mm -hmm. But they can kind of start to put these things together just like a puzzle. And then, like you said, infer the rest of it and Mm -hmm. what it's going to look like based on the fact that pretty much everything in pottery, unless it was like an animal or something like that, if it was... A, it was a vessel, and vessel indicates it was holding something, mm-hmm. then it's more than likely round in shape. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can make a square one, but I think they were just less common, you know? Yeah, totally. Especially once the throwing wheel became prevalent, because that inherently makes round shapes. Yeah. yeah you know, just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the experiment, the author looked at the process that may have been used to produce the vessels and the skills and techniques of the potters to produce the large body vessels. And they hope to, again, correlate function at the mm-hmm. same time. And again, this is all crazy because these are so big. Yeah. They're really big. Yeah. And, and they're just like, how did they get this done at this time period? Yeah. How like, they even like, do it? Today's, and why? You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and why? Yeah. That, that was the big thing. Yeah. So the experimental kiln was used for a total of three firings. There was a pilot firing before that that was just kind of like a let's get it hot sort of thing yeah basically i mean here's the thing all the firings essentially failed yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, the first firing didn't reach the temperature needed for the large vessel they actually used modern clay for one of them in the first firing and Mm -hmm. it just didn't reach the temperature needed to cook it the third firing was unsuccessful the second one was just like completely unsuccessful but the third one was unsuccessful and one of the vessels broke somewhere during the firing so yeah the only real success here aside from in this case negative results is actually positive results because a failure just means that, okay, well, this isn't going to work, this isn't going to work, and this isn't going to work. So crossing the next, things off your list, basically. Yeah, the next yeah. time she does this experiment or the next time somebody else does it and they read this paper, they're like, okay, I'm not going down that road. Yeah. I'm going to try this now. Yeah. I'm going to try this. So even though part of it was, again, technically a failure, it's still a positive for future research. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that really did kind of work, and I'm going to put a huge asterisk on this, <laughs> is the kiln didn't fail. They're calling right. that a real plus because they built it with the same tools and materials and style. Shape and style and yeah. all that. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, it didn't fail, but you also said it didn't quite get to the temperature it needed to. If it had right. gotten that high, would it have exploded? Would it not have worked? Yeah, totally. So I'm not sure... I'm not sure you can really call the kiln a win until you can reproduce the things the kiln was actually supposed to be used for in that kiln. Yeah, because we know we made the things. We found the the remainder of the things. Yeah. So they must have had a kiln that was capable of creating it. Right. So I guess you have to assume that the kiln shape and structure, because we also know what those look like based on mm-hmm. the archaeological remains. So you have to kind of assume that you have the right kiln shape and structure. Right. But maybe there's some minute detail about it that's slightly different. Maybe they need slightly different shaped bricks or something. I don't know, but they, they don't would know. have all that from the site. So yeah. 
it, Mike, I guess what I'm wondering is, should they change the kiln in some way going forward, or do they need to change the pot itself in the way they they constructed it going forward? That's right. That would be my question. I guess yeah. it's probably their question too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like they like the clay and the and the pot construction itself, like the 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 building up of it mm-hmm. was probably you know within historical standards. Mm-hmm. But the uh, they even mentioned in there that they may not have let the clay dry enough. Oh, not dry long and, enough, uh, right. Modern potters, I mean, sometimes they use drying rooms to accelerate the drying. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the Minoans were doing this as well. Mm-hmm. If they just, like, you know, put it in a hot room for a little while. Because you don't want it too hot because, again, that's a firing and it mm-hmm. will explode. And you don't want the clay to really set like that. Yeah. You want to first drying on it. And then, uh, I don't know, again, if the ancient techniques were similar to modern techniques, but after that first drying is when a lot of decoration could happen as right, well. Right, right. You know, the glazing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then they put it in the kiln, and then it, you know, gets that finish to it. So Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But, but we do know that from watching the the pottery throwdown that that pottery breaks in kilns when there is some kind of moisture that was left in it so i guess that would be the first thing to do is just let it dry longer and see if it comes out complete but indeed very cool though well what's not complete are some things found at sutton who we're (laughs) headed back up to england and sutton who for the next segment back in a minute What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take and whether it can be broken up, and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www.arcpodnet.com motion. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the Experimental Archaeology Show. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a cool show. It would be a cool show. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to contact XARC and see if they want us to do their podcast. Actually, I was on their website. I think they have a podcast. Oh, my God. (laughs) I didn't listen to any of it, but, (laughs) you know, if you're really into experimental archaeology, go check out their website. There you go. Find a new podcast to listen to right there. All right. Yep. So this third article relates to the Sutton Who site, which we have talked about Gosh, at least a couple times in the past. Yeah, at least a couple. We did a whole movie review because the Sutton Who movie. Mm -hmm. What was that movie called? The Dig. The Dig. The Dig came out a couple years ago, and then we've just talked about this site in general. It's a really cool site. It was a full Viking ship burial, basically, Mm -hmm. that was found in the 30s. And the one ship had like a a full burial in it and everything. And Mm -hmm. this particular article is about specifically one of the artifacts found in that main burial at Sutton Who. Right. The name of the article is A Proposed New Appearance of the Iron Stand from Sutton Who Based on Existing Material. So I feel like this is like kind of like tangential to experimental archaeology because mm-hmm. they do recreate a couple pieces of it trying to 
see what the shape might have been yeah. if it were complete. But it's mostly just like looking at the artifact and interpreting what's missing, what it originally looked like, and sort of debunking some of the past interpretations of what this artifact was and what it looked like. Yeah, because a lot of the things in the Sutton Who ship burial, especially like the iron artifacts and things like that, were, I mean, essentially flattened. Yeah. Because they just kind of fell apart when the whole thing just collapsed in on itself. Yeah. And the soil, too, was really, really bad for yeah. the decomposition of those kind of artifacts, too. Right. So they're just like really fragmented and falling apart and just not in good shape at all. Yeah. This particular one, it's a very unique artifact. There's nothing similar for comparison in the archaeological record that we have found so far. Mm-hmm. And like we said, it's incomplete due to poor preservation, both the flattening and and the soil degradation. Right. Now, researchers in the past have made their best guess as to what the shape and function of the remains that we can see, mm-hmm. what they would have looked like. And the first interpretation happened in 1952. And this was when they were planning to put some artifacts on display, I think, at like the little Sutton Hoo Museum. And they just wanted to have something a little bit more complete to put on display with this thing. So they they made an interpretation mm-hmm. that was probably not correct, but that's okay. There was a stag-shaped element that was found near this stand in the initial excavations. And so they're like, okay, cool. It's nearby. So, like, it was probably the capital element, the top, at the top of this stand. That's probably what that was. So they they put that stag element on the top of it. And then they also made some other like assumptions about where this like basket part of it would have gone to. And so now is the point where I want everybody, including you, Chris, to open up the image that we have linked to in our show notes. Or you can go to the article and look at it there. Mm hmm. And they have this color drawing, basically, of of what the shape looked like. And they've given names to all the different aspects of this iron stand. So when I talk about point A or strut R or whatever, reference this diagram. And I'll do my best to explain it in words as we go here. So the capital element was that top part with that stag-shaped top part, right? Stag-shaped is a little bit, uh, I'm like, really? Stag-shaped? Are you looking at the little green blob in the I picture? Am. Well, yeah, that's because this picture is drawn after they removed the stag because uh, they okay. decided that it's not actually part of that this makes stand. More sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There was some kind of capital element there, but what remains of it is just sort of a, a blobby thing. Mm-hmm. And then down from there, there's this upper basket area, and they know it's a basket because there's a strut that comes off of it and sort of leans toward the shaft of right. the stand. So they know that it was some kind of basket. They don't still don't know what the purpose of it was, but that was definitely what it was. And they call that strut that's leaning out, they call that strut R. And it looks like it's going to this point further down below called point A. Mm-hmm. It looks like that strut is headed for that point A and it connects in there. And so that's what they they said, that it probably went to that joining point A. That's where they're out in 1952. Well, in 1972, they reevaluated it because they're like, eh, some of this does not look quite right. Like, (laughs) this strut can't go all the way to here. This stag is not the right thing for the top. So they... They did the further analysis. They uncovered the fact that this stag is definitely not part of the capital element. It's, yeah. it, there's no evidence to show that that piece was attached to anything ever. And the capital part of it 
on the stand does not show any connection point either. So like mm-hmm. they definitely weren't connected. So they looked at the point A thing where this basket supposedly connected and they were like, okay, well, the strut had to have gone somewhere. So we're just going to like move this point A up and it, it just connected right there. Whereas in the 1952 one, they, they just sort of didn't know. So they just kind of like left it floating. Like, right. eh, we don't know. We're just going to be like that. But they decided this point A connection point was further up and it had moved while underground. Did they discuss whether it was possible that the basket moved up and should be moved down? They did not. I think because the basket part of it is still still welded on, very well connected. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now they were correct to move the stag, obviously, as we talked about. But but the thing that they weren't correct about is that that point A element that it probably is actually in its proper location. They have some evidence of the welding on both the element itself and also the shaft. So that probably mm-hmm. is in the proper location. And then the other thing about 19, the 1972 representation is that there are some like sort of amorphous bits that were kind of hard to catalog. So they just sort of like left them out in the reconstruction of it. And they're like, meh, we don't know what this was. So mm-hmm. we're just going to not acknowledge it. <laughs> so the interpretation of this piece today, which is what this article is all about, they wanted to take into account all of the different pieces and where they are now and look at how well they're attached to the shaft and whether or not the piece is in its past shape or if if there's been some kind of decomposition to it. New research shows that the upper basket part, and we're calling it upper basket now, new research shows that strut R was probably forge welded to what they're calling now point B, which is higher up on the shaft than point A is. So that strut that's sticking off of it probably attached into the shaft there. Right. And then point A is probably in its proper location. And it might have been for just a lower basket where all the struts and arms are gone from it. Okay. I already already know what this was. Oh, you do? Yeah. Well, when you're looking at the figures, if point C was actually attached to point A and there was no like... Lower, like there were just struts coming down. Mm-hmm. It just looks like a disc golf. Uh, <laughs> it does. That's what I'm thinking it was. <laughs> you think like, there are like chains connecting it, it and you yeah. throw the frisbee through it? So they use the so they use the uh, spike. Yeah, they okay. put it down on the ground and they can uh-huh. just you know they're in their boat and they're like you know what I think it just we need a break. Let's just <laughs> yeah. post up on shore and play some disc golf. Prehistoric disc golf. That's what I'm thinking. Well, not prehistoric, I guess. Bronze Age disc golf. Woohoo! <laughs> it does look to me like regardless of where these lower and upper baskets and stuff like that are, that it was something that was essentially stuck into the ground that you could set stuff on. Yeah, or do totally. Something with. Yeah. Yeah. And they they looked at the the spike end of it mm-hmm. and it's it sticks out a little ways past the little knobby bits on the bottom, the volutes they call them. Mm-hmm. Um and it looks like it probably went even further than what is left because of the angle. They this was where the experimental archaeology part yeah. comes in, is they recreated it using the angles just to see if if that is long enough or if it needed to be longer to actually come to a point that would yeah. have been stuck in the ground. And they did find that it should have been like eighty millimeters longer than it is now. And then the other thing that they found, too, is that there's radiography evidence of copper alloy plated decoration on the lower end of the strut. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they think that this might have been much more elaborate, decorated with the copper alloy plating all over. 
And all of that is gone now because the corrosion would have been really extensive given the soil conditions that Sutton Hoo was found in. So it's all mostly gone. I mean, I would just assume that everything within this ship, being the kind of burial that it is, mm-hmm. was highly decorated. Oh, I know. It must have been. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Unless it was... Unless you're looking at something that was functional for the ship, you mm-hmm. know? But then again, would they have taken that out? I mean, they still found, like, nails and stuff that were used to hold the thing together. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, those weren't ceremonial and, and fancy. Mm-hmm. They were just a ship they put together. Yep. Um, but the things inside, yeah, I would just assume that everything was, was fancy. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly a very important person that was buried yeah. there. So, yeah, for sure. Well, okay, that was a great discussion with lots of points and struts and elements. It's really hard to visualize it unless you go look at the picture. But I think the thing that I took away the most from this article is that they still have no idea what this thing was used for. There's nothing else like it in the archaeological record. They're using these fine measuring techniques to find out where points joined on the shaft and stuff like that. Yeah. And I guess they're getting a better idea of what it actually looked like before it was buried under the ground for however many thousand years. Mm -hmm. But they still have no idea what it was for. So, and you know what you're missing here too? This is just metal. Who knows what kind of wood components there were or cloth or bone or something else that would have been decomposed by now. So it's just so, archaeology is so hard. (laughs) (laughs) It's just... Like, how do you draw any conclusions about anything, really, when you look at something like this? It's just impossible to say. No, it's crazy. It goes to show, too, that it's really difficult for us to have, even though we think we may, a complete picture of the past. Yeah. We don't have even a partial picture of the past. No. we, We have a tiny little glimpse into past societies based on you know scant evidence of artifacts and things like that. Mm-hmm. And other societies, we actually, again, it's it's through a biased lens, but we do have a better picture. Like, you know, the Greeks and the, the Egyptians and the, and the Romans, they, they did a lot of stuff with images and mosaics and representing things in that way. But again, it's an, it's an artistic representation of something that's probably not every day. Yeah, totally. And, and this is a, this is a, a ship burial uh, of a, a notable figure, and I can imagine this wasn't representative, representative of every day either. So mm-hmm. this kind of an artifact, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever see anything like this again to, yeah. to find something that we might say, oh, here's the missing pieces that we didn't have. Right. This must be what it was. Yeah. So. I can't imagine it happening. And sometimes when I'm thinking about stuff like this, I, I like look around the room I'm sitting in, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is still here in 2000 years if we walk away right now, right? right? Like the TV's still here, and the computers yeah. are probably still here, but the couches, they're gone. The, you know, the framework is left, maybe. I'm you looking know? at this crazy Dyson fan we just got, like one of those tall, tall ones with a big elliptical shape. And uh-huh. in 2000 years, the electronics aren't going to work anymore. Nothing's going to work, but who's going to know what that is? There's no right? blades. There's yeah. no anything. Yeah. Like, what is this big, maybe weird? It's our Android. It's our Android house servant. Been, could have been our servant. <laughs> That's right. I know. It's just so hard to interpret when you miss yeah. all of the things that will decompose. So anyway, yeah. that this article was interesting, at least from that perspective, although it feels like they really like drew no conclusions, yeah. even though, oh my God, there are so many words in this article. <laughs> like, honestly, <laughs> so many there words. are so many words and many of them make no sense because of the elements and I don't know, points and all that nonsense. So I'm not but, sure I recommend reading it exactly, but looking through the figures is great and reading the like the 
abstract and the conclusions, you'll get a bit of an idea too. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. You know, that's the quick, quick and dirty of an article. Read the abstract, read the conclusions, look at the pictures. Yeah, and if you need more information, I mean, they have to, in order to put together an article like this for a journal, your your results have to be replicatable, and for your results to be replicatable. You have to list every minute detail of the things that mm-hmm. you did. And to be quite frank, most people don't need that information unless you plan to try to recreate yeah. this experiment. Unless you're actually going to yeah. try to like figure out what this thing was. Right. Hey, you know what? Maybe pe- more people should try to figure out well, what things I mean, like this are for. That's what they do, though. You know, somebody <laughs> will take this and say, yeah. OK, I'm going to I'm going to learn from this and see what I can figure out. Yeah. You know, maybe 3D print the whole thing and, and drill into it a little deeper. So but uh, yeah. anyway. All right. Well, that's about it for this experimental episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Experimental archaeology episode. <laughs> Definitely check out the links in the show notes and go play around on exarch.net. It's a pretty cool site with lots of stuff, and apparently they have a podcast. So go listen to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, all right. Well, with that, we will see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.